0: The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn In Vivo. Today's guest is Professor Mark Urban from Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. We talk all things climate change, what's causing it, its effect on the environment, its effect on species extinction and how we can halt its progression. And I want to start at your Twitter bio specifically. It's one of the most badass Twitter bios, in my opinion. It's reversing the sixth extinction. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about climate change, and specifically, what is driving this sixth extinction?
1: Yeah, thank you. I don't think anyone's ever <laughs> told
0: me my Twitter was badass. <laughs> uh, so what, what is driving the sixth extinction? You know, is it just climate change, or what else?
1: No. I mean, the sixth extinction is being driven right now by what I call the big three, and those are, are land use, uh, so essentially land that was natural and is being used for agriculture or housing or the next mall, so land use is the big one right now uh, and, and will continue to be big into the future. The second one is over-exploitation. So we can think about fisheries collapsing around the world, uh, basically mm-hmm. extracting too much of a certain fish species until they decline. Uh, and then the other one is invasive species, so something like the zebra mussel that's invading waterways here in Connecticut. So those are the big three. The new kid on the block is climate change. Mm-hmm. It's something that we don't understand as well, but research suggests that it will increasingly be an important factor in leading to extinctions in the future.
2: It may be hard to quantify, but what is like the relative contribution of each of those, say, the big three or climate change to driving this extinction?
1: Yeah, the big three are, are the majority right now for driving that extinction crisis. And the idea is, is that there's going to be an acceleration of the degree to which climate change mm-hmm. will also affect species. And so we're right now, you, know, you can imagine, uh, you know, a hill sloping upward. We're right sort of in the beginning of the hill. We're just starting to feel that the elevation is changing. But mm-hmm. the problem is, is that, you know, quickly that hill starts to ramp up and, right. and it starts to get steeper and steeper and steeper. And you know, we get the choose where we are on that hill, and as it gets steeper and steeper, we lose more and more species. Right. And the problem
0: with that is the irreversibility, can't bring it back. And so once we push past a specific threshold, even climate itself will almost become a turning point in which we're not going to be able to change the problems we've already caused, and then that will lead to a domino effect of many different things, is that correct? You know, the climate change is a continuum, right? So, mm-hmm.
1: you know, depending on how much of these greenhouse gases we emit, it's going to change the Earth's temperature and, and other factors on the Earth. We can assign thresholds to that, and one of those thresholds is when a species goes extinct, and, you know, that is irreversible. And I think that's one of the, I want to say a few things, but one of the things that climate change can have an impact on that will not come back, mm-hmm. right? So, this you know, I have, I have a particular interest in the Arctic and the sea ice. Mm-hmm. We know the sea ice is declining very rapidly, but when the climates moderate and actually come back toward more historic levels, the sea ice will return, mm-hmm. the ice will return, right. but say, for example, the polar bears that relied on those sea ice, they will not. And so the ecosystem will be changed irreversibly because of the biotic factor, mm-hmm. not necessarily the physical factors.
2: So could you go into a little more detail about that chain of events where climate change, change in temperature leading to what that ends up resulting in extinction of various species. Yeah. Is it direct? Is it an indirect effect of the temperature? Like, how's that playing out?
1: Yeah, so I caution to think about climate change is just temperature. So mm-hmm. temperature is sort of the headline, but climate change has a, a number of effects. And one of those also is on precipitation. Mm-hmm. And so it changes how much precipitation an area gets. So unfortunately, the dry areas tend to get drier mm-hmm. and the wet areas tend to get wetter. And it changes when that precipitation comes and in what form. So, for example, in New England, we'll see much more of a precipitation in rain rather than snow. So there's the precipitation factor, but there's also sea level rise. And one of the immediate physical outcomes of heating up the oceans is that they expand and cause sea level rise, and there's also the melting of land ice that contributes to that. The sea level rise is another important factor. So we like to call it not just climate change, but climate weirding. You know, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. just things are going to get weird. And that's what we've seen already. So the chain of events to cause an extinction is, in the most simplistic, direct way, is that you get a change in the climate. And the species that you're looking at right now, you know, has a particular distribution. And so I think maybe lots of listeners have that bird book somewhere on their shelf. And you look through and find the bird. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, this annoying thing where you have to find the map on the back to see if it's actually a bird that lives in your region. And so you find, you know, page 393 and you go there and then there are these blue and red blobs. So that's, you know, the species range maps drawn based on observations. So you think about that blob, say, you know, across New England, as climate changes, that blob could move, right? So the climate now in Connecticut might become better for something that lives in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So that bird will then sort of shift that blob up into Connecticut. And in fact, that's what's happened with things like the cardinal. The cardinal didn't live in the winter in Connecticut until about 1944. So we have really good records of birds. And even though it's this iconic bird that you see on the Christmas cards, Mm -hmm. you know, with the beautiful red cardinal with the snow background. You know, that's something new here, and they've shifted north in part because of warmer winters. So that's sort of the the direct chain of events is that that distribution moved. move. Now, if, for example, that species can't move very well, then the climate sort of shifts out from underneath them. You know, the carpet goes and the species that was was on that carpet doesn't go (laughs) with it. And that's one way you could get an extinction.
2: So that mobility or lack of mobility of a species could be a death sentence, kind of.
1: Yeah, in my mind, it's the mobility of species that is one of the most important factors Mm -hmm. because we see those climates shift in, and then a species, if it wants to keep that original distribution, has to be able to move to keep up with it. And so, you know, we're really concerned about species that don't move very far.
0: I mean, it's also a time factor, too, right? Because these changes are happening rapidly. And you're not allowing evolutionary time to allow these species to adapt to slow changes that they might have been able to do if the same changes were to happen over a thousand years rather than in 10 years, right? Right. So
1: we we know from the past, climates change through geologic history. And, you know, if we went back tens of thousands of years ago, that we'd be underneath a big, big, huge block of ice, Mm -hmm. right? And so the question comes up often, well those species did just fine. They, they shifted their blobs down south and they shifted their blobs back up after the ice age ended. The problem with today is that just like you said, it's changing so rapidly. And so for say a tree to keep up, it really needs to move its seeds mm-hmm. much farther than it did in the past. The other part about it is that we've completely changed the landscape. So if we get back to the mm-hmm. first question of yeah. land use. You know, if you think about a species that's trying to shift from Virginia to Connecticut, they're going to hit a whole bunch of cities along the way, and uh, farmland and highways. (laughs) Uh, you know, you imagine a, you know, a frog trying to jump its way from Virginia <laughs> yeah. to here, you know, it's, it's like Frogger on the highway, and, and it's got to make it through all those built-up areas. And so that's the other problem with species trying to track sure. that so change. Would you say a big
2: problem is this, like, multi-pronged attack against these species where if it was just climate change, maybe they could squeak by, depending, but like given that there's also these other big three issues that it just kind of creates a situation where a lot of species kind of have no chance?
1: It's the interactive effects, I think, that are really important to consider. So There are direct impacts, and I can talk about species that there's a really direct link between climate change and their extinction risk. But for the vast majority of species, it's the combination of all these changes to the environment and now having to deal with the new kid on the block, mm. climate change.
0: So are there species that are most susceptible, right? So plants, the mobility is the um, issue. I think we mentioned earlier, like, cold-blooded animals that can't actively thermal regulate and rely upon their environment to drive their internal temperature so are you know cold-blooded animals more susceptible plants more susceptible whereas something like a mammal is better suited for this change
1: yeah i think cold-blooded could play a role in it it's not as important i think as mobility though so you know if we think about the species that are often considered most at risk of climate change we think about reptiles and amphibians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are species that often don't move very far. They're also cold-blooded and susceptible to those those temperature changes. But I think maybe the bigger factor is, is mobility. mobility, but also the interaction of these other types of stressors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, for amphibians, they're already decimated by disease. They tend to have very small distributions, often sort of these little pockets on mountaintops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah.
0: Before we jump right into how motivating action from people to stop climate change. One of the examples of that is, you know, like you see irreversible changes or extinction species that we don't directly interact with. And how do we communicate the gravity of that situation to the public? The example I think I gave you was if dogs went extinct, it would have a greater impact on people than if a rare bird population goes extinct because mm-hmm. people don't see it, they don't interact with it, they don't right. appreciate its value. So how do we best communicate the gravity of these changes and the effect of species loss to the broader public?
1: Yeah, I think that's important. At some point I would gotten a call from a producer who was doing some sort of show on climate change and extinctions and you know, she wanted me to tell her what species were at risk of extinction and I came up with all these examples, these sort of exotic species from you know, different mountain ranges and islands in the Pacific, and she stopped me and said, no, no, I want to know what's going to go extinct where I live in New York City. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And at first I didn't have a good answer, but there are some good examples. And, you know, one of them is the salt marsh sparrow, which is worked on by another faculty member here, Chris Elphick. And uh, there are 50,000 of these birds, and they're within sight of New York City. They're right along the coast. Mm -hmm. And this is an example of uh, a bird going extinct, not through direct temperature change, but through sea level rise. Mm-hmm. And so they, they live right along the coast, and as the sea level rises, they're, they find it difficult to be able to lay their eggs before the next waves come in and wash away their nests. Mm-hmm. So there are species that people do have direct interactions with. And to say it's not just about extinction, it's also about just changing the ecosystems in ways that affect humans really directly. So one of the things we've seen is the invasion of southern pine beetles in mm-hmm. Connecticut. And so As the name implies, they were a southern species, and and they (laughs) (laughs) caused you know billions of dollars of damage to forests. And basically, as winters have warmed, they came up to New Jersey, then Long Island, and then they hopped over to New Haven. And so here's a species that is killing pine trees in you know southern part of Connecticut and coming up north. So it's you know changes to our forests like that through pests, and it's also changes to the food we eat. So Mm -hmm. the American lobster used to live right in Long Island Sound and be plentiful, so plentiful that the Native Americans, when there was a storm, they'd go and they would just pick up <laughs> you know, these windrows of them along the beach <laughs> that crazy. would get washed up on the shore and they'd eat as many as they can before they they, they went bad. Uh, and the American lobster is very rare now in Long Island Sound because it's gotten too warm for it. Wow. And so it's even our food sources now. You know, Now it, we don't call it the American lobster, we call it the Maine lobster because that's where it can now live. Uh, so there's changes to that too. But the other thing is, is let's say there's a species that lives on a remote mountaintop on an island in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And people say, why care about it? Well, to me, it's, you know, I think there's an intrinsic reason to want to protect uh, the species on Earth for the next generation. You know, Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, that there's no reason why we should allow these species to go extinct. That's sort of a very, you know, sort of higher level meta type Mm -hmm. of, of reason. I want to leave those species for my children and their grandchildren there's a direct reason as well and so if you don't believe in all that uh... you know each species is a book in the library of the evolution of the earth and and this species has survived things that we've never even encountered and so you know i could talk for hours about the different things we've learned about these rare species that no one cares about that are improving the way that we engineer things, are giving us new medicines, mm-hmm. are giving us a way to solve problems that you know, we're not smart enough to solve, but these species through evolution and natural selection have had to solve to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, Every species that has survived has survived all these assaults, and there really is this library
0: that we're burning the books on. Yeah. I read that quote, I forget what article you wrote that in, but it was really impactful just that we're burning the greatest books that Earth has written before having read them. And it's just, it's moving to understand that, yeah, it's irreversible. You cannot go back and figure out what the species did, how it lived, how it interacted, if it's then gone. So what about temperature? Temperature is tough because, I mean, I feel like we've all started to notice shifts in temperature. I don't know how drastic our perception of those changes are. We were just talking about this walking over here about it feels warmer in October now, Mm -hmm. but is it truly warmer even if the average is a couple degrees? Can you notice that? Are we imparting a bias understanding that climate change is happening? But a lot of people might even appreciate slightly warmer temperatures, Mm -hmm. less extremes. And so that's a tough one where the effect in the beginning is almost enjoyable,
1: right? Yeah, so climate change is interested in the... Uh, long-term averages right so unfortunately many people will try to ascribe a, a particular weather yeah. event to climate change mm-hmm. and, and we can actually do a little bit better job of that through some ways in which people can attribute those but in general we're not interested in day-to-day patterns or even year-to-year patterns we're looking at the long-term yeah. average and it's very clear that in New England and most of the world that we've seen uh, strong increases in the temperature you know going back a hundred years going back you know 50 years, we're, we're seeing those changes. But of course, it's a few degrees and mm-hmm. that might not be noticeable. You know, They take off our sweater and, and say, hey, it's a warm day. Right. Where the problem comes in is on these thresholds. And so when we think about just a slight change in temperature it may not matter on a day like today, but it really matters in November or December when in the past, it would have frozen the ground, it would have caused a snowstorm. And so you think about those thresholds and then you talk to people about well you like it warmer now but do you want to have a winter where there's basically no snow on the ski hills <laughs> and then they say or there's no ice <laughs> in the ponds that you can go skating on and so there's those threshold things uh, especially in winter where it does change things pretty abruptly and so for example you know, if you look at the ice cover on New England lakes uh, it's a month less or more now than compared to earlier in the century so I think that the threshold traits are really important and also you start to see again some weird events so you start to see really big rainstorms you start to see really big hurricanes and those things can really Mm -hmm. affect you just you know a small increase in the strength of a hurricane and the ability of a hurricane to exist farther and farther to the north can have a huge impact especially in our region
0: yeah
2: what do you think about society's response nowadays to climate change so talking about trying to communicate the gravity of the situation to the public. Do you think that there's, and there's certainly been a growing, you know, uh, acknowledgement and understanding, I think, of climate change in the public. But do you see the level that it's at right now as adequate? Do you think people understand what's going on? Do you think people care? Like, do you think that that's there?
1: I I do think that people care. I've kept track of some of the public uh, opinion polls on that track this and look at the degree to which people in the U.S. or the world understand that that the climates are changing and understand that that climate change is a direct result of human action. And those numbers have been growing and are pretty high. I mean, a majority of the world, a majority of Americans understand that this is a real problem. Mm -hmm. I think that because it's such a big problem and it's sometimes you know a little bit subtle right now in its effects, or maybe people don't make the connection to events that happened. Maybe it's a little bit harder to sort of you know bring into your daily focus. But I think that's changing now as we see some of the events unfolding around the world, and we see these extreme events. You know, people talk about it now all the time, and I think we've really sort of reached this uh, part of you know our era where climate change is just in the conversation. Yeah and people understand we need to do something about it. Even though it's a big problem, they understand we need to do something about it. And, you know, I, I've been galvanized by students here on campus, by their activism, and, you know, students here, they get it. You know, it's, it's the rest of their life, they're gonna be dealing with these things, and it's gonna affect their ability to get jobs, it's gonna affect the economy, it's, it's gonna affect their health. And so, you know, I do think that we're reaching a stage
0: where people, understand that we have to solve this now. Mm -hmm. Just one of the issues, though, with it is, like you said, it is so massive of a problem that a lot of people are overwhelmed by how to deal with it and that they question the contribution that they can even make towards the larger narrative that's going on. And that's, you know, will my actions as an individual person really make a difference compared to these large corporations or agriculture industry or something like that, that really are the main drivers of precipitating these changes. And it's tough. I don't know how people uh, day-to-day can go about you know, really committing to changing their lifestyle with the understanding that what they do might only have a small sliver of effect. And I don't know how we could best you know, yeah, motivate our know, action.
1: I think a lot of the actions will take uh, a global and national effort mm-hmm. you know, to uh, create the incentives at least to drive the world toward a different way of obtaining its energy sources, mm-hmm. and you know the technology is there. Colleagues of mine built a house now where it doesn't basically need any heat or cooling. You know, wow. and, and it it wasn't really more expensive to do that. I mean, we have all the technology. You, you insulate it really well, and you have a house that doesn't really require much. You have to put solar panels; you don't even need electricity. Mm-hmm. So we've got all the technology there. It's a matter of Providing the incentives to make that switch a little yeah. bit faster. And and already some of the renewables are better than in terms of their cost than many of the fossil fuels. So we've got the technology and people are, are galvanized to do something. And, and and small actions do add up. Yeah. But you know, also I think there's the example of people, especially people in college, who are influencing decision makers. You know, it's one person who's influencing the people can make these big changes. Greta Thunberg Mm -hmm. is a great example. The Swedish student who started on Fridays to go to the Swedish parliament and demand action has galvanized people around the world. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people to march on their capitals of their states or their countries to try to influence politicians. So I think, you know, one person can make a difference. uh, (laughs) But, you know, it's gonna be a combination of sort of personal choices, but also governments coming together and making those changes that really allow us to adopt the technologies that exist and develop new ones mm-hmm. to meet this challenge. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we've faced harder things in the past. <laughs> we've faced, you know, wars and everything else. <laughs> and, and we've met them, we just have to decide that this is something that we're going to face head on and then we'll solve it.
2: One thing that I wanted to ask you about was Kind of looking at the other side of people who are less aware or accepting of it, what can you tell us about uh, climate change models? Because there's people who doubt them insofar as um, there have been models in the past that predict XYZ, you know, mm-hmm. this city by 2020 will be underwater. And like there's some extreme examples that have floated around of these predictions for climate change. And people use that as an excuse to say, no, see, this is, we can't trust this. So, how are these models developed? What is Mm -hmm. factored into them? What's the resolution on these models? Just to give a little bit more insight to somebody who doesn't, you know, understand how we get there.
1: Right. So I should warn you that I'm not a a climate scientist. I'm a biologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have uh, read, digested many of the work on these models just to understand them. But I would allow a real climate scientist to answer that. but, (laughs) But my short answer is that The climate models have become much better through time. So they started as a way to understand the climate and also to predict weather and have become more and more advanced through time. They are able more and more to be able to accurately both predict the climate in the future as the climate unfolds, the models that made predictions in the past are doing a better job of predicting what we're seeing today and they also use them to what's called hindcast so the opposite of forecast, but to basically try to predict the weather that we do have records of and, and they do a really good job of doing that now and of course, with anything anything in human life, from a car to a toaster or whatever, there's room for improvement mm-hmm. and so you know there are literally thousands of scientists around the world that are working to improve these models every day and, and saying okay well we could do this well but we didn't really predict this event very well and so they're working on on improving those models making them finer resolution so the first ones were relatively coarse you know it might be a block across all of new england and now they're working on downscaling them so that they a uh, the block might be the northeastern part of connecticut or even smaller to understand the climate change for those Example of how they've been improved is that initially they didn't include the ocean. <laughs> mm. This is back in the 50s, right? And right. so they just had the climate of the Earth in the terrestrial zone and they included the ocean. And uh, but they only included it as a shallow ocean. And then they included the ocean with the depths, which is where some of the heat is stored, actually. Mm-hmm. And so that improved the models greatly. Uh, and then they started to include interactions between the ocean and the land and cloud formation and you know the newest models include things like the forest cover on earth and how that can mediate the climate and so so they really are very sophisticated and are doing a good job and in most sense you know the climate predictions you know there's little debates on sort of the little wiggles in those graphs but by and large most of the scientific community thinks that we've got a pretty good answer right now mm-hmm. on, on what to expect. You know, you know, the biggest uncertainty in all those models is what humans do. <laughs> right. yeah. So it's really, you know, if you look at the differences between say uh, a 1.5 degree Celsius change in temperature or an eight degree Celsius change, it's really what are we gonna, how are we gonna regulate our greenhouse gas emissions? Right.
2: Acknowledging again that you're not a climate scientist, do you know like how they try to go about like accounting for that and discerning exactly what the level of human interaction in this has been?
1: Yeah, so they actually have people who are experts in social dynamics and economists and you know some interaction with the climate modelers and they come up with what they call scenarios. And so they decide on different ways in which the future might evolve on earth. And so they say, well, there's there's one way as business as usual to say, okay, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing in terms of population growth, mm-hmm. in terms of the way that we uh, live in cities or not, the way in which we do agriculture, all of that. And that's one scenario. And then there's scenarios where very quickly we decide to adopt environmental regulations to curb our emissions. And so that's another scenario. And then there's you know some other scenarios where you know things become much worse and mm-hmm. we become isolated and don't tackle the problem and there's wars and you know so there's there's all different futures that we can choose from sure. and and those provide the inputs for the climate models to say okay well if we follow this route these are the emissions that we predict yeah. in the future
0: so it's not just one model it's sure many different variables you can plug in and play and see what the model predicts based on certain behavior different trends in human activity um, but let's bridge back now to you know, what specifically your lab does, what what your focus is, your group here at UConn, if you could provide a background of, you know, the focus or the questions your lab is trying to answer and the means by which you're going about interrogating those questions.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I've talked a lot about climate change. Climate change wasn't a thing that I really expected even to be working on. Mm -hmm. If you asked me 15 years ago, I, I probably wouldn't have said that. But our work basically starts in the field. We work in nature. I work on ponds around New England. I also work on fish populations in Arctic Alaska. And and, um, you know those systems, in really trying to understand them, it became necessary to incorporate the idea that the climate is changing and affecting those systems. And so so that's driven many questions. Uh, Another part of my work is trying to bring together biology as one discipline. So A long time ago, it sort of was separated that there was evolution as one part and ecology as another. And so evolution looking at genetic changes and then ecology looking at changes in abundance and distribution of species. And what we realize now is that we need to bring them together Mm -hmm. because you can't consider one without the other. And so the adaptation of organisms affects how, you know, they go up and down in abundance and where they can survive and the ecology of those species Uh, determines whether or not they can adapt or not. And and so a big focus is trying to incorporate both an ecological and evolutionary view of how things respond to both natural and human disturbances, and bringing that discipline together and doing a combination of field observations. You know, there's, there's one week I might be in a remote camp in Alaska putting tags in fish. understand their movement patterns, Uh, you know, another week I might be doing a really careful lab experiment, like real scientists, Mm -hmm. you know, wearing lab coats (laughs) and using pipettes and things like that. You know, another day I might be out in a local pond doing some manipulations, so adding a predator to a pond to see what happens, things like that. So we we, we really cross the gamut from, you know, even theory to careful experiments to broad observations of what's happening in nature
0: where did this interest come from? Like at what age, you know, did you think you wanted to pursue science and then specifically bridging these two fields of ecology and evolution?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think I was probably a scientist from early on. I think it was you know, scientists, archaeologist, <laughs> and photojournalist were the three. And, you know, archaeologist was because of Indiana Jones. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I always loved being outside. And, you know, I was the kid that picked up all the rocks and found the salamanders and would go off uh, in in the fields and forests and, you know, just just really enjoy nature and and seeing that. And so I I think biologist was really the one thing that I wanted to be from an early age. But, you know, I was really interested in, in just biology per se, not the evolutionary part until I was a graduate student. You know, I just never really had exposure to evolution. And then there was this project I was working on and my thesis was to understand how predator and prey interacted across landscapes in these temporary ponds. People call them vernal pools. And it was weird because I would walk into these ponds and you know this pond over here I would see all these tadpoles and salamanders living together and with all these predators and the next pond be like annihilation. There would just be a few fat predators and nothing else left. And so again it was you know from nature that was saying you know there's something else here Mm -hmm. look into it (laughs) and it turned out that the prey populations were adapting differently to the predators and so that sort of set me on this course to say wow evolution is really important and not only is it important but it's super important at these fine scales you know we think of okay well maybe this species evolves here differently than it does in europe but you know, what we find is that evolution has happened on such a fine scale from pond to pond, from field to field, from yard to yard, that mm-hmm. that's something we need to really incorporate into all of our thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're trying to
0: get other people in the field to think about more. And I noticed that you often help contribute or participate in youth engagement with science. And I saw your students were judges at a science fair on your website. And so this interaction with the community, this motivation of you know engaging the youth with Learning what science is, research, basic, fundamental, ways of thinking. I I don't know if you had that experience when you were younger that you were motivated by someone, or what you feel the uh, importance of that is today, of current scientists inspiring the next generation to become even slightly interested or aware of modern science practices.
1: Yeah, I think it's clear that when I write a scientific article that it's scientists that (laughs) are reading those. (laughs) I don't know how many of you have read my recent paper, but... (laughs) You know, scientists need to communicate their results to the public and help the public understand what they mean. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've had an interest in doing that after that realization that, you know, most people are not going to read my papers. (laughs) They're good papers, but (laughs) um, so trying to work to communicate those results, either through the media, through through something like this, uh, or trying to get to schools or citizen groups to communicate it directly. And, you know, I definitely have been influenced by environmental educators when I was a kid and really fascinated by science. So I try to bring that love of science to as many people as I can. And, you know, I don't always have the time to share it with everyone, but but, uh, you know, once you have kids, you understand uh, that, you know, you want to provide them with the tools to understand the world and science can do that, and so as much as I love my job, I want to share that love
0: with other people. That's great. And I mean, a lot of children already have curious scientific mindsets that are then almost hardened into, I don't know, specific needs of society or something, and so you kind of bottle up that inherent curiosity through, I don't know if it's our education systems or whatever it is, but it's good to keep that internal flame alive. And to do that, you need people currently, as scientists or investigators, observants, whatever, to inspire and say, like, keep that. That's good. You know, right now, it, it may not make sense to you why you're asking so many questions, but that's going to help you later in life. And yeah. I don't know how we best do that, but it's just an observation.
1: Yeah, I think kids are natural scientists. I think yeah. all people are natural scientists. We, we want to understand the world mm-hmm. around us. You know, I don't know if people lose it or or not, but, you know, I. I I do see kids who are just super enthusiastic about right. learning things and, and uh, experimenting with things. And, and so hopefully we don't lose that through life. Hopefully we continue to do that and look at the world with curiosity and, and try to understand it. You know, one of the things that I found in my life is that every time we think we know the answer about something, we learn something <laughs> new. You know, it kicked in the ass and, 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 and yeah. find out that we didn't really know it. You know, there's something else that is new and the world, nature, reveals that to us when we are curious and when we really question it. And so we always have to question things and try to figure things out. That's what yeah. leads to progress. I
2: was just thinking that's the best and worst part of science. Yeah. That, you know, there's, you're never quite there. Like the more <laughs> that you learn, the more you realize, no, that's not, not quite it. It's humbling, quite too. It. Exactly. It's yeah. very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But what I found out is that you know, if you come into a project and you, you expect a certain answer and you get it, it's much less exciting than when is. you get the other, you know, another answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more difficult, it's it may be annoying, but that's where you really learn something and, and it might be something brand new. You know, I've learned to accept that as being the exciting part.
0: Mm-hmm. Those <laughs> unanticipated than, results. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This was great. Thank you for taking the time to do this with us. Yeah. Appreciate it.
1: Awesome. it. Thank you. This was great.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to the podcast. Check out all of our material on iTunes or Spotify. You can check out our social media at in vivo pod for both Twitter and Instagram, and email us with any comments or suggestions at Invivo.podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. He can be found at The Golden Whammy Bar. And our illustrator is Sarah Demers at underscore, 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 try Sarah Top, underscore, underscore. We'd like to thank our funding from the Office of the Vice President for Research and the Office of the Provost. Thank you very much.